As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead, grab your Bible, and you can open up to um, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Well, um, this is the second week of Advent that we are celebrating. We said last week that the word Advent um, actually means the arrival or coming, and it's a season of great anticipation. It's a seating of, season of waiting. Advent is not trying to stretch out the day of Christmas for a month. That's not the goal. This isn't the 12 days of Christmas and the gift giving that comes along with it. It really is to be a season where we learn and we remind ourselves of the need to slow down in life and to contemplate things that are, are of eternal significance and value. We need to train ourselves. We need to teach ourselves. We need to learn to wait and to anticipate and to celebrate Christ in a way that is pleasing to God. So maybe it's been a bit of a hectic season for you. Interesting, isn't it, how, how the season where we're supposed to be waiting and slowing down is often the most fast-paced, the most furious, the most hectic, and the most chaotic. And what God is calling us to do this morning and through this Advent season is just, hey, slow down, take a breath. And so I'm just going to give you permission right now, just for a minute, to take a deep breath, okay? Go ahead. Take a deep breath. Just breathe it in. Slow down. Settle your heart. Let all of the cares and all of the worries and all of the anxieties and all the pressures that you face every day of your life just kind of slip into the background, and right now, just allow your heart to be settled and waiting upon the Lord. Advent is about peace. It's about the peace that we find in Jesus Christ. It is about the peace of Jesus Christ. It's the peace that the angels sung about when they came and said, Glory to God on high on the highest, in the highest, excuse me, and peace on earth. It's the peace that every heart longs for. And it's not a cheap peace that closes its eyes to the chaos and brokenness of the world. It's not the cheap kind of peace that closes its eyes to the chaos and brokenness of your own life, the things that you're going through, the experiences that you're having, the pressures that you face. It's a peace that meets us in those realities, and it acknowledges that Christ has entered into our chaos. Last week, we saw that there was a promised hope that is found in Jesus Christ, and it was built into the very genealogy that Matthew provides for us in chapter 1. But now as we look at the birth of Jesus, the actual event of his birth, I want you to see how this birth is intended to bring peace to all of humanity, and maybe for the first time to you this morning. Matthew writes these words in chapter 1, verse 18. He says this, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was to be found with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Matthew unfolds this birth story in short fashion. It's not an extended story. He doesn't expound much upon the details, not like Luke does, for example. He keeps it short and sweet, and he gets right to the point. And as Matthew unfolds this story, we can see, as we kind of read between the lines, that this is a story that is filled with actually much chaos and confusion, but it's a story that is intended to drive home this dominating thought of peace. It seems at the outset like everything is unraveling, 
chaos and confusion abound, just put yourself for a moment in Joseph's shoes, and even in Mary's shoes. What God is doing in the midst of what seems to be chaos is bringing peace not only to Mary and Joseph, but peace to the entire world. And as we enter into this story, we see what we all need. We see we need exactly what Mary and Joseph needed. We see what all of humanity needs. We see peace that is found only in Jesus Christ. And so first, notice this, that peace is broken by the sin that separates. There's a longing for peace within us because we know, fundamentally, we are not at peace. There is a desperation in each of our hearts for peace. We despise the thoughts of war and violence. We see the tragedy and brokenness of the world. Peace is something that we all deeply long for. Now, if you were here last week, we saw that in the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew has already prepared us for the precarious circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. Um, In the genealogy of Jesus, four women are identified, and and we saw last week again that that's not simply that it's something that was uncommon in the Jewish world, it was something that was actually unheard of. And the women that are identified are all stories of brokenness. The women who were prostitutes, women who were foreigners and ostracized from the community, women who really uh, didn't have much of a chance in the world, and yet who were met in their brokenness, who were met even in their sinfulness by the very grace and kindness of God. And it wasn't just the the women that were sinners in that list. Every single man in that list was a sinner. It was filled with men like David, a murderer and an adulterer. Judah. Ahaz. Even Abraham, who lied repeatedly. Here, what we see is that in the testimony of some of these women was that we are being prepared to see that there will be some scandalous circumstances, or at least the appearance of scandal surrounding the birth of Jesus. Here is Mary and Joseph. They are betrothed to one another, as we see in verses 18 and 19. They were engaged in one sense to be married, but it was much more serious than that. Betrothal in the ancient world, and especially according to Jewish law, typically lasted about a year's time. It was a a binding contract which could uh, be broken only by death or divorce. They were actually already considered to be married, though the marriage union had not been consummated. They were married legally, but they could not yet live together. And so we see this picture of Mary and Joseph, who were called husband and wife, who had not, not yet known each other in the most intimate sense that that means. And I want you just for a moment to kind of inject yourself into this scene. I think sometimes we read this story and we're so familiar with it, we can't quite process what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph to actually be living this. Mary is young, likely around the age of 13, 14 years old, somewhere in that range. Joseph is likely significantly older, probably by at least 10 years. This was common in Jewish custom during the day. And you can imagine that they had been engaged, betrothed to one another, looking forward to their their wedding day, planning everything out, Joseph building a home for their family. They'd likely been apart for some time, and imagine the first time that Joseph sees Mary coming towards him and recognizes instantly that something is wrong, something is different. The beautiful glow of a pregnant woman, that's what we call it, right? Is not the sign in this instance of joy and happiness. It is the sign of heartbreak and tragedy. Now, pregnancy out of wedlock can have a social stigma in our own day. Not not much anymore, but still, even in our day, it's generally looked down upon. But that is nothing like what it was in the ancient world, especially in the Jewish community. Instantly, Mary would have been viewed as an adulteress. According to Jewish law, she could have been stoned to death. Now, the Jews under Roman occupation could not put anyone to death, and so that wasn't even on the table. 
But this is the, the very instant that Jesus confronts when he confronts an adulterous woman in the Gospels, and they're looking to stone her, to put her to death. This is the situation that Mary finds herself in, an incredibly scandalous scenario. You can imagine that she would have lived uh, her life very, very difficultly with great shame and reproach upon her. Joseph, equally so, is likely devastated when he first sees Mary, when he first sees and hears that she is pregnant. He is heartbroken. And he is a just man, the text tells us. You notice that? And as a just man, he was actually right to put her to divorce. It was something that was allowable in the culture and something that would have been expected. Being a just man, the text tells us that he wanted to do so quietly. Not only is he just, but he is kind and generous. And in this situation, just imagine the, all the, the trappings that surround this crazy situation in a tight-knit community where everybody knows everybody and the scandal is out there for everybody to see. It can't be hidden. Here is Joseph wanting to do the right thing by divorcing her quietly so that he doesn't bring additional shame upon her. Joseph seems like he's a legitimately good guy. But this would have meant humiliation for him. It would have shattered him, no doubt. He would have likely been angry and deeply hurt by what he perceived as a great sin. We know that there was no sin, but Joseph doesn't quite know that yet. Or at least he doesn't believe it in the moment. I mean, think about it. What else is he supposed to think? Not one of us, if we were in his shoes, would have felt or thought any differently than he does. And here's why. Because we all know the pain and tragedy of sin. He is assuming there is sin involved here for good reason. Because he lives in a world surrounded with sin. He lives as a sinner amongst sinners. Again, we got a glimpse of that last week as we looked at the genealogy of Jesus. It is filled with a long list of sinners. I said last week, it's like, it's like Matthew gives us a criminal lineup as the lineage of Jesus. Every one of those individuals filled with scandal and sin, reflecting the world around us. Listen, but more importantly, reflecting the heart within us. To one degree or another, everyone on that list in the line of Jesus and the line of David traced all the way back to Abraham had been damaged by sin and had done damage with their own sin. They had sinned and they had been sinned against. They had been hurt and they had hurt. You see, this sin that we all experience on a regular basis produces a separation, and we understand this at a personal and individual level, at a relational level. level. Our sin creates separation and division between those we sin against and those who have sinned against us. But beyond that, we're reminded that that only is the reality because of a greater separation that takes place in our sin. As David says, against God and God alone have we sinned. The scriptures remind us over and over that there is a separation between us and God because of our sin against him. Our sin is flat out rebellion against our king and creator. It creates massive distance and alienation, spiritually speaking, between us and God. It reminds us that there is no peace between sinful humanity and a holy, righteous God. And we long for peace because we were made for peace. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, I want to remind you of the language that's used there, and I want you to see what this implies. When God creates all of the world, he, he uses one word to define it. He says it is what? Good. And then he creates humanity, and he says humanity is very good. And good in this sense, listen, doesn't just mean perfect. It is that, perfectly created for that which God has designed it. It is functioning in perfect relationship to God. It is good because it is beautiful. It reflects the image of the creator. Listen, but because it is in perfect sync and harmony with the creator. 
There is perfect peace in the garden. There is perfect peace in all of creation. And in an instant, when sin enters into the picture, all of that peace is shattered. Sin produces chaos and hostility. And all we have to do is look around the world um, to see that. Wars rage right now all around this globe, a, a reminder constantly that there is no true peace. But we don't even have to look at the news and around the world. We can look in our own homes and in our own relationships and see that there is no true lasting peace that we experience even in this life. But beyond that, we can have a closer look and reminder as we look at our own hearts and we experience constantly a lack of peace in our lives. Our sinful flesh, even as Christians, is a perpetual reminder that we struggle to find peace. We wrestle with anxiety. We are wrought with fears. And turmoil and chaos is all too common in so many people. I was speaking to somebody last night, and a friend of mine, who uh, you'll like this illustration, uh, he he works for um, Molson Canadian, the beer company. And here's what he says to me. He's telling me about some of, you know, he's he's a rep, and he says this, he says, you know, guess what the fastest growing market is in the beer industry right now? And I know some of you, you're fascinated with this, right? He says it's the non-alcoholic beer industry. Fastest growing market in the beer world. I said, why, why is that? Is that because of the, you know, the health craze? He's like, well, that's part of it. There's a variety of factors. But one of the dominating factors, he said, is this, is because our culture is so heavily medicated like never before. And apparently, it's a bad idea to mix alcohol and prescription meds. I, you know, I, th- I, th- I thought, I just, as he said, I'm like, wow, what a, what a reminder. Listen, wh- why is our world so heavily medicated? Is that because mental health is on the rise? I don't think that's really the issue. I think it's because our, our world is longing for peace. And everything they try to find peace in ends up creating more and more chaos and turmoil. And they look for something to try and settle their hearts, to try and fix their lives. And it doesn't actually work. You see, we seek peace through a a variety of different ways. I want to give you a few buckets, a few categories to maybe think about this in. Here's the first one. We seek peace first through independence. We seek peace through independence. We believe, some of us do, that independence is the key to really understanding and experiencing peace in our lives. We believe that self-sufficiency is going to be the key to finding true internal peace. Trying to produce, in other words, our own self-worth, build up our own self-esteem. And for a lot of people, that means this, everybody else has to go. I can't rely on anybody else. I have to rely upon myself. I don't need anybody else. I need to find myself by myself. And for some people, that means this. They they look at the people in their lives and the relationships in their lives, and they see them as an obstacle to finding the peace they long for. And so they abandon families and spouses. And if they don't do it physically, they do it mentally and emotionally. They become obsessive with the things they believe are important to them. It's about me and my happiness, and I need to do what's best for me. If I had a dollar for every time I heard somebody say that kind of an excuse in pursuing their sin... Be a wealthy man. I just need to do his best for me. At the expense of everyone else. But you see, peace is not self-determined, nor is peace self-created. And so the pursuit winds up empty. It hollows us out even more. And when we don't find peace and independence, many of us will seek peace through this next category, and that is this, intimacy. It's kind of the other extreme. We think, you know what? Um, Maybe it's not independence. Maybe it's not isolation. Maybe it's not self-driven and self-directed. I need to find my peace in relationships with other people. They must be the source of my peace. And so I I pursue a spouse and kids and friends, and I try to accumulate relationships that I believe will finally give me the peace and quietness in the soul that I deeply long for, only to find out that every one of those people, every one of those relationships will let me down, will produce hurt and pain like everything else.
There are people in this room who, who seek peace and they run to immorality, sexual immorality, relationships that are not pleasing to God, pornography, which is another attempt, listen, to find intimacy in a place where we are not supposed to find it. And so we run to these things to find peace, wondering why we never finally and fully get there. Maybe temporarily, maybe, maybe there is a bit of reprieve for the moment, but it, it doesn't last. We cannot find peace through intimacy with people, not, not permanent peace, not eternal peace, that's for sure. And we begin to question who we are believing that our peace will come through this next category, through forging our identity. Trying to find ourselves. Throwing ourselves into the things that we believe will produce identity. Our work, our our roles, our possessions, and our accomplishments, and our reputation, and our resume. We believe we're going to find peace through our identity in, in establishing what we do. You know, I'll, have, I'll finally find peace through what I do or what I have or what I accomplish or what people think of me. Believing that our value and worth and dignity are, are determined by our own efforts or by the world's metrics of success. But it's never enough. We are separated in our humanity from the only one who can give us true, lasting, eternal peace because he himself is supposed to be our peace. You see, peace is not a thing. It's a person. And thankfully, peace is secondly here offered by the God that saves. So again, what appears to be chaos for Joseph is just the opposite of that. Joseph is met by an angel here. God meets him, in other words, in his confusion and pain in a powerful way. Look at what it says in verse 20 through 23. And he considered these things, as he considered them, excuse me, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God sends Joseph this message of hope and a message ultimately of peace. In one sense, you can see God saying to Joseph, hey, settle your heart down. I know everything looks like it's out of control. I know everything looks entirely broken, but guess what? I'm actually working through this situation to give you a peace that you can't even imagine. He calls him son of David. He's tipping his hat back to the genealogy. Remember the genealogy where, where God had promised David that one would come from his line who would rule upon the, the throne of David forever and ever? He's reminding the, uh, Joseph excuse me, in a very subtle way, hey, you're the son of David. You know the promises that I've made to my people in the past. Guess what? You are actually the one I've chosen. It is through you and through your line in this moment of time. But interestingly, um, as some of you have noticed, Jesus doesn't biologically come from Joseph. So how is Jesus from the line of David? How does this actually make sense? Well, it's helpful to know that many scholars actually believe that Mary uh, likewise came from the line of David, although that cannot necessarily be definitive. But here's what we know. Jesus comes from the line of Joseph. And what we see unfolding in this account is that Joseph would have to take Mary as his wife in order to establish Jesus uh, legally in the divinic line. In other words, um, Joseph would have to adopt Jesus as his own son. And in doing so, in in Jewish law and even in, in Roman law, it would be recognized that Jesus would actually become a part of the line of his adopted father. Legally then, Jesus, though not biologically, 
becomes a part of the line of David through the adoption of Joseph. And by the way, just as a little bit of a side note, the fact that Joseph is the one who has to give Jesus his name was a recognition of this reality. It was Joseph's way of claiming Jesus as his own son, embracing him as a father embraces a child. Joseph, met by this angel and given this divine message, is convinced about the truthfulness of Mary's explanation. You can imagine that they had already had some conversations. Mary must have tried to explain to Joseph what had happened in her own vision that had been given to her, in her own encounter with an angelic messenger. But let's be honest for a moment. I mean, again, put yourself in this situation. Right? You come home and tell your husband that God mysteriously and supernaturally put that baby in you. You are going to need an angel from heaven to show up to confirm that. It's just a reality. But I love this story because what seems actually like a catastrophe is actually God's way of bringing peace and harmony. Because this is no ordinary child. That's what this story, Matthew is going out of his way with great pains to demonstrate. This is no ordinary child. I want to just really quickly walk through who this child exactly is. He is first the life giver. He is the life giver. And Matthew wants us to see that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Twice it's mentioned here in this passage. In verse 18, it says that Mary was, to, was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And in verse 20, near the very end, it says um, that this was the message that was given to Joseph from the angel that um, Mary had conceived in her. This child is from the Holy Spirit. Now, theologically, that is incredibly important to understand. It is the Spirit who gives life. Here, what we see is the Trinity at work, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit fulfilling their roles in bringing peace to all of humanity. We call this the doctrine of the incarnation. That is the theological term for God becoming man. This is the man Christ Jesus, but it is also the God-man Christ Jesus. He is 100% God and 100% man. Matthew does not expound here on the significance of this, but what we see here is how Jesus could actually become fully God and fully man. How exactly did God accomplish this supernatural miracle? The answer is found right here. The life-giving power of Jesus to all of humanity is found in that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Through the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, the giver of all life comes into this world. And in the incarnation, in the coming of God to become a, a human being, it is essential to understand that Jesus is secondly the sinless Savior. He's not only the life giver, he is the life giver because he is the sinless Savior. Now, you'll notice here again that Joseph is told exactly what he is supposed to call this young son that he's going to have. And his name is going to be Jesus. The Hebrew pronunciation of Jesus is Yeshua. And the name Jesus, or Yeshua, is actually the New Testament version of the Old Testament name Joshua. And the name Joshua, and thereby the name Jesus itself, is God is salvation. And what we see happening here is that the angel is actually explaining to Joseph the very name and purpose of the son he is going to have. His name shall be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's saying that's what his name means, and that's what he's going to do. Joshua in the Old Testament depicts the coming of Jesus. Jesus, in other words, would become the, the, the greater Joshua, the one who would be like him but do greater than him. Joshua in the Old Testament, remember, he, he led the people of God as the successor of Moses into the promised land. 
into the, the promised homeland for the people of God. But as he did so, he had to enter into the land and systematically he had to conquer the enemies of God's people. He had to purge the land of all of the sinful practices, the idolatry. He had to rid the land of any false worship so that only God could be worshipped there in that place. But we know this, that Joshua, as great as he was, as strong and courageous as he was, as valiant and determined as he was, did not even complete that mission. But you see, Joshua always pointed towards one who would complete the mission. He pointed toward one who would actually enter into the fight himself, who would conquer the greatest enemy of all, sin and death and Satan. He would win a decisive victory, and he would lead his people into the promised homeland. All of this is wrapped up in the very name of Jesus. That and so much more. He is the true and better Joshua who could accomplish this only because he is the sinless Savior. You see, the incarnation reminds us that it had to be God who comes for us because only God could be sinless. He had to be a man so he could be our substitute, but he had to be God so that he could be the perfect substitute. Sin causes this separation between us and God, but sinlessness is required to bring restoration between us and God. And that leaves every one of us in a difficult, uh, precarious predicament. In fact, it leaves us in an impossible situation because none of us can expunge our criminal record. Not one of us can be sinless. Not one of us can undo our past mistakes Not one of us can perform enough good works to outdo or eradicate or erase our past lives of sin. And we can't expect God, a holy, righteous God, who is the judge who sees all things and will hold all people accountable, nothing is away from his gaze. We can't expect this God to simply forgive and forget. No, God must deal with our sins. God must punish our sins if he is to remain both just and holy. So the incarnation is God coming in flesh to actually deal with our sins, to put an end to our problem definitively. He is sinless so that he can be offered up as a perfect substitute in our place. But next we see that Jesus is the promise keeper. As we've already noted, noted, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament covenants and promises that God has made. But he is the fulfillment of so many promises that have built upon those other foundational promises. God, as we look through Scripture, has progressively revealed more and more information. And so what started off somewhat ambiguous a little bit unclear, becomes sharper and sharper and sharper as we move through the pages of Scripture. We see a clearer picture of who this Savior would be, of what he would look like, of what exactly he would have to do to accomplish this salvation. And here what we see is that Matthew, he is so intent on looking at the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, he says this in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The prophecy given in Isaiah's time during the reign of Hezekiah had an immediate fulfillment There was an immediate context where God was showing that his power to save would be put on display, and he was going to provide a sign, a child that was going to be born of a virgin, of a young woman. And there was an immediate fulfillment of that, but what is so common in biblical prophecy is that there is a near fulfillment, an immediate fulfillment that actually looks forward to a fuller and final fulfillment. It's an important biblical principle. 
But even Isaiah, in the context of the immediate fulfillment, very early on in the book of Isaiah, we see that this promise of this child who would be born of a virgin actually is sharpened in only just a couple of chapters. By the time we get to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we see that this child would be called the mighty God, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. And Matthew rightly sees in this sign a a further application that is pointing towards the fulfillment that is taking place in this moment in Joseph and Mary's life. And that prophecy tells us that this son, Jesus, he would have another name and his name would be Emmanuel. He would be God with us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Matthew is making it so abundantly clear that our God is a God who makes promises and keeps his promises. And though it may take time, and though it may happen in ways that we can't quite understand in the moment, God is faithful to his word, God is faithful to his promises. You know, all of this, when I I think about the Christmas story, this is a powerful argument for the faithfulness of the word of God that we preach from every week. Like, why do we preach the word of God? Why do we keep coming back to this book? Why aren't we preaching about human opinions or pop culture issues? You know, why why don't we take a different approach to how we do Sunday mornings? Why is this so central to everything we do? Because it is he in this book that we see that our God is true, our God is faithful, our God is a promise-keeping God, and his word can be trusted. We have nothing else. We find life from the very word of God, and our confidence is in his faithfulness, in his very character. Lastly, notice this, that we see that Jesus is the relationship restorer. That name, Emmanuel, is so significant. He is God with us. And this statement really gets to the very heart of the incarnation, the very reason why God took on human flesh, the very reason why God wanted to pay for our sins in the first place, wanted to offer us forgiveness and grace. There is an end goal in all of this. And the end goal is a restored relationship with God. You see, this language of God with us is significant all the way from the very first pages of Scripture to the very last pages of Scripture. The whole point of salvation is that so you and and me, we can know peace by being back into a restored relationship with God. You know, the separation that took place took place at the very beginning of the Bible. And I want you just to think about this for a moment. The most beautiful part of the Garden of Eden was the presence of God that was dwelling amongst man. Amen? Amen? The most horrific part of being kicked out of the Garden of Eden was being removed from the very presence of God that man was created to know and enjoy. And the whole goal of the Bible from that point on, Adam and Eve, the whole point of a Savior coming is so that the presence of God can dwell with man again and that so man can dwell in the presence of God again. And God teaches us this throughout the scriptures. You know, God rescues his people. He delivers them from Egypt. And he leads them by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud during the day. His presence dwelling amongst them. He promises them in Deuteronomy, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell in your midst. He gives them a tabernacle to take with them as they move through the wilderness. A place where his presence dwells with his people in a limited, isolated way. But there it is, a glimpse of what was and a glimpse of what is to come. They get into the promised land and they build a temple. And in the Holy of Holies, the presence of God comes and dwells with man again. But it's still limited. It's still not the presence of God that was intended to encompass the entire globe from coast to coast, from sea to sea. And Jesus Christ comes, and John says that Jesus Christ tabernacled among us. That's the language he uses. Here is God dwelling with man again. And as Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father after the crucifixion and resurrection, he sends his spirit. 
And he tells us that, that we have the Spirit of God dwelling among us. We now are temples of the Holy Spirit. The church, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, is a temple of the living God, his Spirit dwelling amongst us. Listen, when you get to the very end of the Bible, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth, listen, what we see is the vision of God coming to dwell with man again. Do you see why the name Emmanuel is so significant? This is God's plan to bring peace to the entire universe. Everything so jacked up and out of order because of sin will be in perfect harmony and peace once again as God comes. He makes all things new and the presence of God will dwell with man across the globe. God has come to put an end to hostility. Hostility that is caused by sin and rebellion. He's come to bring peace that is required to dwell in his presence for all of eternity. And this idea that God comes to dwell with man is incredibly important because more often than not, man is trying to figure out a way to get back to God. Every other religion in the world is trying to find a way to reconnect with God. There is this inherent sense that we are supposed to get back to God. I watched a a video clip earlier this week of David Platt. Um, It's just a a quick one-minute clip, but he was talking very briefly about how he was in another country, and uh, he was sitting outside a temple in another country, and he was talking to a couple different men from different religious backgrounds, And, and as these men were talking, they were talking about their own religions, and they were acknowledging that each of them had a, a religion um, that, that would take them ultimately to God, and they were agreeing that, you know, your religion gets you there, and, and my religion gets me there. And David Platt said to these men, he said, so if I, if I get you right, what you're saying is this. It's like God is on top of a mountain, and we are all at the bottom below, and we may choose to take different paths up that mountain, but eventually we're going to all end up with God. And the men looked at him and, and said, exactly, you understand. He said, well, what if I told you that none of those paths could actually get you to God? So God came down the mountain for us. And he said, both of the men looked at him and said, well, that would be amazing. And you see, that is amazing, isn't it? And that is the story of the gospel. God comes down the mountain in the form of a baby. And he comes for us because we could never Make our way up to him. She said, well, how do I get that peace? And here's the question that if you don't know today, you need to understand and embrace. And if you know it today, it should cause your heart to rejoice. Peace is known by the faith that obeys. Joseph encounters this angel in a dream such clarity in terms of what is happening. It's all explained to him. And I love this. In verse 24, it says this, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph wakes from his dream. He wakes from his sleep. And what we see so vividly here is that he believes what he has heard and he obeys what he is told. And so here at the annunciation of Jesus' birth, we're brought face to face with the central theme of the gospel. God, who has been at work throughout human history, has come to them in person. And he has come for a specific purpose of rescuing them from the mess that they had gotten themselves into, the mess that we've all gotten ourselves into. Our mess of sin and separation from God is solved only by the coming of Jesus Christ. We're reminded as we look at this, listen, that Christianity is not good advice about morals and good behavior. It is good news about God and what He has done for us. Every one of us needs objective peace with God. Every human being needs to be objectively 
restored back to God. Apart from Jesus Christ, objectively speaking, every human being is at enmity with God. There is hostility and rebellion against God. In fact, the Word of God tells us that we are enemies of God in our sinful condition. And every one of us needs to be moved from being an enemy to a friend, from being a rebel to being a servant, from being alienated to being accepted. That peace only comes by believing the gospel. That's it. By bowing the knee to Jesus as Lord and Master, by recognizing that what Jesus came to do on this earth, being born into a cradle, he went to the cross, that he would truly become the Savior of the world by giving his own life as a ransom for many, that he would suffer in our place what we deserved, that he would give to us credit to our account, the righteousness that we could never earn, that he would rise from the grave, that he would march out victorious over sin and death in Satan, That he would declare that death is not the end, death is not the victor, but Jesus Christ is the victor. And he would be exalted to the right hand of the Father, where he will rule and reign on high forever and ever. Listen, the message of the gospel is simple. It is simple. You believe by faith. You grab hold of the gift that is extended to you. You trust that this is the only way. You can't get to the top of the mountain, but God has come down the mountain for you. And if you believe in what he has done for you, you could be saved this very moment. And that belief in our lives is manifested through obedience to him. Not just obedience in the moment of bowing the knee, but but a life of growing obedience and commitment to our Lord and Master. Commitment to follow our King wherever he leads. To live lives in humble submission to him. And I would just say to you, if you're a Christian today, it's possible that you are living a life and you have objective peace with God. You have been restored back to a relationship with God, but you are living without subjective peace, without the experience of peace in your life. In other words, many in this room, your life, though you're a Christian, may be filled with anxiety and chaos and fear. And every one of us faces that. Every one of us on a regular basis faces this. This is the reality of living in a fallen world, still having to go to war against our flesh, even though we have the Spirit of God within us. But God calls us in His grace back regularly to experience subjective peace with Him. And that peace, believe it or not, comes the very same way that our objective peace comes. It comes by believing, by trusting in the goodness of our God, in the faithfulness of our God, in the kindness of our God, and by obeying His every word. When we live in humble obedience, when we walk by faith and not by sight, God allows us to live with a peace that surpasses all understanding. In moments where the rest of the world is unraveling at the seams, the Christian can walk in confident peace, in confident hope, in confident expectation of God's goodness and grace. So let me ask you this morning, do you have the peace of Jesus? Are you living in the peace of Jesus? God is not likely going to come to you in a dream and reveal these truths to you, but he has come to you now, this very moment, through his revealed word and by the power of his Holy Spirit. And he says to all the world, like he says to us, maybe in a fresh way again today, wake up. Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. God has come to be with you so that you can have peace with God. Advent is a season of waiting. It is a season of anticipating, but it is also a season of celebrating. It's a season of slowing down, reminding ourselves to breathe. And I want to encourage you this Advent season to breathe deeply, to breathe in the peace of Jesus and to enjoy the peace that has been established by the blood of Jesus through the cross of Jesus. The Prince of Peace has come, and he is coming again soon.
So let us praise Him for the peace that He has offered and by His grace, the peace we have received. Let's pray. Father, thank You. You indeed are our peace, God. And we confess to You, Lord, that so often we we try to find peace in other places. We run to the things of this world. We run to the temporary, uh, trivial trite things that this world has to offer, and we find a temporary kind of peace and reprieve. But Lord, we know deep down inside that the only thing that will give us lasting peace is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And God, thank you that at this season, at this time, we can slow down and we can evaluate our our lives, we can evaluate our hearts, and Father, we can be reminded of the grace that you give to us now, even in this moment, Lord, that you long for us to experience peace. And God, for those in here who, who don't have that objective peace, who have not been reconciled back to you, I pray for them now, Lord. In this moment, I pray that their heart would be so longing to be at peace with you, to know the forgiveness and grace and hope that comes only by your finished work on the cross. I pray, Father, that they would be so caught up in what you have done for them, that they would be so amazed, Lord, that they would marvel at your grace in the cross and that they would look, Lord, and see that the grace and peace of the gospel is extended to them. They only need to reach out and grab it by faith and humbly bow down, repenting and trusting in you. God, grant the life-giving truth of the gospel to some this morning. Lord, for those of us who already know that objective peace, God, would you lead us into more and more subjective peace? God, forgive us again in this world for being so caught up, so busy, so chaotic that we don't take time to, God, meet with you and be with you and trust you and obey you. God, lead us back to the path of peace again today. Reestablish our trust in you, the Prince of Peace. Give us hearts, O Lord, that long to tell others that they can find peace in you. We praise you now. We pray, Lord, that what we sing to you would be pleasing, that you would receive it as an act of worship with hearts, Lord, that are filled with love and life that is given by you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.